You know, it was on New Year's Day uh, exactly 250 years ago that the church was introduced to probably one of the most beloved English hymns ever written. Uh, It was written by a former slave ship captain whose lifestyle before Christ would have made even the most immoral of sailors blush. I'm speaking, of course, of John Newton. His hymn was Amazing Grace. And John Newton wrote that hymn probably about 25 years after his conversion. He had become a pastor. He was mentored by George Whitfield and John Wesley, of all people. He was pastoring a small church, and he uh, was studying from First Chronicles chapter 17. And uh, there's a passage where David said these words, Who am I, O Yahweh, that, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And Newton, as he reflected on David's words, said, you know, that that describes me. (laughs) He saw himself in the same way, an undeserving sinner who had received God's grace, that he had committed terrible deeds and yet experienced the grace and kindness of God. And so uh, he wrote this hymn sort of in response to that to teach his congregation. And that's why he begins the hymn this way. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Uh, Newton actually had given a different title to that hymn originally. He called it Faith's um, Review and Expectation. That was the original title. And after he introduced it to his congregation, he asked them this question. He said, or made this statement. He said, the Lord has given us many blessings, but unless we are grateful for them, we lose much of the comfort from them. I thought there was such wisdom in that. And so in the wake of our celebration of the Lord's resurrection last Sunday, I thought it would be good for us to go back and remember God's blessings in that work of Christ and what he has done for us and in us. And that as we do that, we will be comforted, I think, by reminding ourselves of those incredible truths. But again, as Newton said, we need to take time and stop at times and remember and be grateful I think that song we just sang is very appropriate to say, Jesus, thank you in response to what he has done. And that's how Paul actually begins his letter to the Ephesians in this way. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to recount those blessings that he has blessed us with, that God has chosen us, that he has redeemed us, that he has forgiven us, that he has sealed us. And then Paul describes this as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places he's given us. And you know what makes that all the more incredible? Is to think about who we are. And actually that's where Paul goes next in Ephesians chapter 2. If you could turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2. Because as Paul describes who we are without Jesus, we we come to recognize it wasn't that we were such great and lovable and desirable people that God wanted us to be with him. Right. Is that were we so attractive to him that that is why he did all that he did in our salvation? What Paul wants to remind us is actually quite the opposite, isn't it? If you look with me at Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one, Paul says these words. 
After he described the blessings that God has done in our salvation in Christ, he said this, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly lived or conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Let's stop there a minute. In Newton's New Year's message, by the way, he asked the congregation this question. He said, where were you when the Lord found you? And then he responded, I was a wretch. Now, Pastor Thomas mentioned last week, we don't hear that word wretch very often, do we? But it certainly, I think, is the exact right word that describes what Paul says here in Ephesians 2 about us apart from Christ He reminds us that we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to Satan, enslaved to the world. He reminds us, he says we are children of wrath, a description that we are worthy justly to suffer God's wrath for eternity. And in fact, it was so bad. Paul says here we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And what did he mean by that? Not physical death, at least not at that moment. Sin brings death. But there he was talking about, he says, we were dead, meaning we were spiritually dead in our sins. What does that mean? Have you thought about what the implications of that are? When we were in Pakistan, uh, one of the, uh, in one of the villages there, we saw a funeral procession coming down the street. Large crowd of people. There was a body being carried on a cot above the the crowd as they were moving. And it was rather noisy. There was uh, uh, lots of people crying, uh, cars honking, music playing. And despite all of that noise, the body didn't move. Now, what do you think would happen if someone had gone up to that cot and shook the cot, shook the body and yelled, hey, wake up, get up? What would have happened? Absolutely nothing. Why? Person's dead, right? The body's dead. There's no ability. It has no ability to raise itself up. It had no ability to hear. It had no ability to all to respond. And that's who Paul says we are without Christ. We have no ability in ourselves to respond to God. We have no ability to make ourselves alive. We have no ability to raise ourselves up. We have no ability to save ourselves because we're dead, spiritually dead, Paul says. Lost, blind, without hope. But God didn't leave us there, did he? Why I love verse 4. Look with me there. Paul says this, but God. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones called that but the, the greatest word in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. (laughs) You see, though, though we were unable to bring ourselves to life, God could. Though we were unable uh, to take ourselves out of bondage to sin and Satan in the world, God could. Though we could not save ourselves, God did. Yeah, amen. How did he do that? In and through Christ. Why did he do that? Well, he says right here, because of his mercy, great mercy and love 
Because of that, he sent his son to do something we could never do for ourselves, and that is pay for our sin. As that hymn goes, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? And Paul doesn't stop there. In describing God's work and our salvation, he keeps going. And I want to focus our attention this morning on verses 7 through 10. Because it's in these verses that there's just some amazing truths that we need to reflect on. Again, to remind us of what God has done. Look at verse 7 with me. God made us alive with Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Now, there's a word that Paul repeats three times in these verses. Did you notice it? It's actually in a few of the songs we sang today. It starts with the letter G, that word grace. Grace. By grace you've been saved in verse 5. And then he repeats that again in verse 8. By grace you've been saved. Verse 7, he says the surpassing riches of his grace. And that word grace, charis in Greek, is one of Paul's favorite words. It's used about 155 times in the New Testament, but over 100 of those were from Paul. And there are 12 times alone in the book of Ephesians, Paul mentions this word charis. You know what it means? It's really a, an unmerited favor. It's an act of kindness upon someone who doesn't deserve it. You could think of it in connection with mercy. Mercy is not getting something that we deserve. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. And that's what Paul mentions here. And so as we remember this morning God's blessings in our salvation, I would I would put forth that maybe among the greatest, one of the greatest would be his grace, his unearned, undeserved favor toward us. And it's, so it's worth our time to pause and reflect on the amazing grace of God, because I think to me, it's one of the most comforting and encouraging truths as I reflect back on what God has done in my life. And here in Ephesians 2, verses 7 to 10, Paul shows us three aspects of God's amazing grace. He shows us God's amazing grace in the past, in the present, and in the future. First, let's look at God's amazing grace in the past. We see that here in verses 8 and 9. You know these verses. You've probably shared them with people many times. So why don't you say them with me? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. Every believer has a testimony. Every believer has a story of God's work in their salvation. And those testimonies are like fingerprints. There's really no two that are exactly the same. But there is a common thread among all our testimonies. There's a, a link, something that is common, the same to all of them. We've all been saved. How? By God's grace. Through faith. The only reason, the only reason any of us know Christ, the only reason we've been forgiven, the only reason we have hope and promise of eternal life is because of God's grace. An unearned gift that He has given. 
And Paul emphasizes this here in this passage. He repeats, for by grace you've been saved twice here. And actually he puts that word charis at the beginning of the sentence. That was a way in Greek you could emphasize something. So by grace you've been saved. Paul's emphasizing this fact. Now the question is, saved from what? We hear that word saved thrown around a lot. Saved from? Well, verses 1 to 3 clearly tell us what we've been saved from. Again, Paul says we were slaves to sin. We couldn't help but sin. We were slaves to Satan. He was a ruler of this world, as Paul even mentions here. We were destined for hell. We were even slaves to this world system. We've been freed from that, Paul says. And even more so, we've been freed or saved from the eternal judgment that all of us deserve because of that sin. Romans 5, 9. Paul says, having been justified by faith, we've been saved from the wrath of God. Didn't we just sing that a little bit earlier? In that song, Thank You, the Father's wrath, we've been saved from. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 describes that wrath, that, that it's the penalty of eternal destruction. The state of being destroyed forever. Away from the presence of the Lord. That's probably even a worse part. And from the glory of his power. But, Ephesians 2 says, in Christ, by God's grace, he has extended a gift for salvation that we don't have to answer. You don't have to answer for the sins you've committed. And it isn't just what we are saved from, but Paul also adds here what we are saved for. Verses 5 and 6, he said, we've been given spiritual life in God. We, we have a new citizenship in heaven. We have freedom from the power of the evil one. And all of this, how? Brothers and sisters, talk to me now. How has this happened? By God's grace. Through faith, Paul says. Again, he's emphatic about this point, not only by repeating twice for by grace you've been saved, but also notice in verse eight, he says, this is not of ourselves. And the, this here is God's grace through faith, our salvation through faith. We didn't rescue ourselves, did we? Again, that dead body on the cot did not get up and join the join the the crowd. He couldn't. At the end of verse eight, Paul adds, it is a gift of God. What is a gift? That's something you earn. It's something that's given from the giver of their own decision. It's not merited. It is a gift. And even the way he orders the words here in the original, he says this and not of you of God is the gift again to emphasize that point. And then on top of that, Paul says in verse nine, not of works and works here is just a reference to an effort, a labor, an action. Paul's saying here, our salvation didn't come from anything we did. It didn't come from any religious activity. It didn't come from any work that we performed, any kind of uh, spiritual duty that we carried out. Nothing. Why? Because it's by His grace alone. Now, this is a difficult concept for humans to accept. It's a difficult concept for us. It's in our nature to feel like, no, no, there's got to be something that I do. There's got to be something that I contribute to our salvation, to my salvation. This concept of a, of a gift, something given without being earned, something that we have that, that we couldn't achieve ourselves, not even a part of it. Paul dealt with this thinking all the time. 
People who could not accept that there is nothing we can do to be made right before God. Galatians 2, 16, he said these words. A man's not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Right. Three times there, he says, we cannot be made right before God. We cannot be righteous only by faith in Christ because of God's grace. That's it. Paul dealt with this issue, not only with the Jews, but also with the Gentiles. Gentiles who came out of this religious system as well, where there was these works that they had to perform and either to appease a deity or to get some blessing from the deity. So Paul here, he's writing to Gentiles, right? He's writing to Ephesians and he's describing this idea as well. It's the same today, isn't it? Every major religion. And now I've been in countries that have practiced many of these Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Every major religion except Christianity has some sort of work or service you need to perform to go to heaven or to be right with God or to experience blessing in eternity. Every one of them, every cult, every religion except genuine Christianity. Right. What was it? Spurgeon said every religion says do, do, do. But Christianity, it's done, done, done. Even people who aren't religious, if you've talked to them, who don't have a a religion they adhere to, they even believe, you know, if I just do enough good, it'll turn out okay. Right? But listen, again, we have no ability at all in ourselves. We're all dead in sin. It isn't that God helps those who help themselves. It's that God helps or better rescues those who know they're helpless. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The only way we're saved is by God's grace. Through faith in him. Again, no good deed, no religious activity. God will accept them. The Bible is so clear about this. Over and over, 2 Timothy 1, 9, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And that's why Paul ends this in Ephesians 2, 9, when he says, no one can boast. We're not going to meet anybody in heaven that's going to say, you know, (laughs) boy, I did such a good job in making my way here. Nobody's going to say I was good enough to get in. Nobody's going to be able to take credit for any part of that salvation. None of us are going to be looking to ourselves. Where's our attention going to be focused? He did it. (laughs) That's why I'm here. You know, you'd have a better chance paying off our national debt. Yeah, which stands at what now? 30 trillion or some crazy number. You'd have a better chance paying off our national debt than paying for your sin. Only the blood of Jesus can cover that. And we know that's the case by what we celebrated last week, his resurrection. That is proof that the Father accepted that sacrifice. 
For by grace you are saved, and then Paul says, through faith. Now that word faith, I think, is often misunderstood, especially in our culture. It's the idea of trust, to believe in. To believe in Christ alone, Paul says. That's what he told the Philippian jailer when the Philippian jailer cried out, What do I do to be saved? Paul said, what? Believe. Believe in. He didn't just say have faith, brother. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3, 16. We know that verse, right? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave. You know it, right? Okay. That he gave his only son that whoever, what? Believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This idea of faith, true faith, it seeks forgiveness from Christ by trusting in Christ alone and nothing else for that salvation. True faith understands Jesus is the only way. That's exactly what that couple told me. We know this is the truth. And we're willing to die for it. That is genuine faith. We trust in Him, in Christ, so much, we will give our lives for Him. True faith desires to turn from sin and follow Christ. Notice I didn't say true faith means that I turn from sin on my own, but by faith I desire to turn from it, follow Him. The Spirit will empower me to be able to do that if it's a genuine faith. And I just have one question for you. Have you done that? I didn't ask if you've been coming here to Ambassador for uh, consistently every week or reading your Bible every week or in prayer every week. Those are good things. But have you put your trust in Christ alone for salvation? Have you confessed your sins to him genuinely? Said, Lord, as Newton said, I'm a wretch. <laughs> There's nothing I can do to unwretch me. Only you can do that. Only Christ can do that. Have you done that? Have you put your trust in Him alone? Have you desired to turn from your sin and call Him Lord? Submit your life to Him. That's what genuine faith looks like. And if you have not truly done that, don't wait any longer. As Paul said here, if you are not in Christ, you are a child of wrath. That's how strong this this certainty is that we are destined on a path, a journey toward eternal destruction away from God forever. But it doesn't have to be that way. It says in 2 Peter that he desires that, that we repent, that none perish. And he's offered a way that we don't have to perish by his grace, unearned gift. If we would believe. Now, it's kind of interesting as I thought about this, you know, I'm stepping back a minute thinking, you know, well, Paul's not writing here to a group of unbelievers, though, is he? In fact, he calls them saints back in the very beginning, I think, in verse two of chapter one. This is a church in Ephesians, this group of believers he's writing to. So so why is he emphasizing so much about God's grace in our past and our salvation? Haven't these Ephesians already come to faith? Don't they already understand? And Paul even gets into it further in verse 11 when he tells, hey, remember, you Gentiles were even further away from God, if that were possible. Well, there's a couple of responses I think we need to consider as you think about 
If you are a follower of Christ, if he has saved you, if you've experienced his grace, as you reflect back on that, how should we how should we respond? What do you think? I mean, one for certainly, right? Give him honor and praise. Thank you. (laughs) Right. Gratitude. I mean, is he not worthy of that? (laughs) Is he not worthy of our gratitude, of our love, of our loyalty, of our lives? I think definitely that that should be a first response. And again, that's why it's good to reflect back, to remember, as John Newton said, remember his blessings so that our hearts would be again stirred and motivated. There's a second response that I have in thinking about God's amazing grace in the past, and that is comfort. It brings me great comfort because, you know, if you realize that your salvation is not dependent on anything you did, then you don't need to fear that there might be something you'll do to lose it. Because of Christ, no work of yours got you into heaven and no work of yours is going to kick you out. Isn't that a comfort? I like how Lewis Sperry Schaefer said, Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human failure and sin. In fact... Grace cannot be exercised where there is the slightest degree of human merit to be recognized. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about that for a minute. Because it means if if you're his child, if you're a Christian, because of his grace through Christ, God loves you and accepts you on your best days and on your worst. Yes, on those bad days, you need to confess and repent be restored. But if you're a Christian, God is not holding those sins over you as a threat that he's going to remove his favor or remove his promises. Oh, I'm so glad my salvation doesn't depend on me. I did nothing to earn it and there's nothing I can do to lose it. Well, here in Ephesians 2, we've seen God's amazing grace in the past Paul also describes his amazing grace at work in the present. And he does this in two ways in this passage. The first is in that clause that he repeats, you have been saved. Really, the the verb saved there is in the perfect tense in Greek. And I bring that up only because it's important to understand this point. The perfect tense means there's a past action that has continuing results in the present. And that's what Paul didn't use a verb that would just be past tense. He used one that, yes, that act occurred in the past, but it has an impact, a result in the present. And that's what's being emphasized here. Paul also adds a a verb of being within the passage. We don't see it in the English text, but he does that for emphasis on the present, that this is happening now, that, that God's past act of salvation in your life has huge implications in the present. It's not just you have been saved, you are saved, is the idea. In fact, there's a few English translations that translate it that way. You are saved. Listen, he did not just give us enough grace to get saved. We have a lifetime supply of grace to keep us saved. But I think... Many believers even live with this mentality like, okay, God saved me, but now I need to keep his commands so he'll bless me. Or I don't want to disobey so he won't be mad at me. Or, you know what, I need to show him that he made a good choice. (laughs) So I want to really work hard and, and, and obey and do all these things. 
or I need to follow the law. So just to just to again express to God that uh, that was worth saving. Again, this idea, there's something I must do to contribute to this thing. But, you know, that's why the scriptures talks about we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I think Jesus addressed this in a parable he delivered in Matthew chapter 20. If you could turn there for a moment, I just want us to look at this for an illustration. Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 19, Jesus had just challenged the rich young ruler. Right. And he said to him at the end, you must leave everything, give up everything and follow me. Um, And then Peter was listening. He picks up on that. And in verse 27 of chapter 19, he says to Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Yeah, you catch a little bit of that, that workspace mentality there. Jesus is so gracious in his response. He does tell Peter there is reward, great reward. But then he said this, the very end, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he gave a parable to explain it. Now, this parable was about a landowner. He owned a vineyard and he went out one morning, early in the morning, and he went out to hire laborers, day laborers. So he went out in the streets, got some day laborers to come and he he told them, I'll pay you a denarius, which was actually was a generous day's wage. That was what a Roman soldier would earn. So for a day laborer to be offered a denarius was that's pretty good money. So several guys said, yeah, we'll come. So they come and work in the field. Well, then at 9 a.m., the, the owner goes back out. He, he finds some more day laborers, hires them. And then at noon, he goes out again and finds some more. Then at 3 p.m., he goes out again and finds some more. Then at 5 p.m., he goes out one more time, finds some guys. He says, hey, have you found work? No, nobody's hired us. All right, come. And then just an hour later, the whistle blows. Work's over for the day. I don't know if they had a whistle, but you know what I'm saying, right? Maybe a horn. You know, okay, we're done. And then the landowner gathers the laborers together, and he's going to pay the ones who came last first. Look with me at verse 9. When those hired at about the 11th hour, that's the 5 p.m. crew, when they came, each one received the denarius, full day's wage for an hour. When those hired first came, they thought, ah, they would receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. <laughs> you know what they're thinking, right? When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, hey, these last men have worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and scorching heat of the day. But the landowner answered and he said to, to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me to work for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. So Paul here, I think, Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus was addressing an attitude in Peter's question. It's not wrong to seek reward from the Lord. In fact, Romans 2 tells us that. That that's okay. But I think there was a motivation and attitude within Peter that Jesus wanted to address here. Right. And so he used this parable. And of course, right, when those first guys received the denarius, the guys that had worked all day were thinking, wow, if he gave him that. Well, how much am I going to get? You know, and then, well, wait a minute. A denarius. Now, at the beginning of the day, he was happy to receive that wage. But at the end, he wasn't. 
What should have he been amazed at? Those guys. The generosity of the landowner. Right? But what were they concerned about? Their efforts. Their work. And what that guy got. You know, the thief on the cross, he only had to live a few minutes as a Christian. He didn't even get baptized. Didn't have to go to church. Didn't do any of this stuff. And he's rejoicing in heaven now. The focus of the parable is not on the efforts of the laborer, but on the grace of the landowner. Did any of those guys deserve to be hired? Did any of them deserve to receive a denarius? And why did he keep going back to get more workers? Was this guy just a poor planner? It's like, oh man, I need some more help. So he goes out again and again. No. At five o'clock, he knew how much work had been done. Do you know why he went out and hired those land, or those laborers? For their sake. Because he knew if they didn't go home with, the, with any money, they had no food to put on the table. These were day laborers. Again, I think the emphasis in this parable is on the grace of the landowner. Now, do you see any connections here to us? None of us deserve to be chosen, do we? None of us deserve God's blessings, every spiritual blessings in the heavenly. None of us have earned our standing before God. Our righteousness isn't based on something we did, but on what Christ did. So the last shall be first and the first shall be last, because none of it depends on our effort, but on his. Again, we're so often performance based. Oh, now that I've been adopted in God's family, I need to earn my keep. No, you don't. Jesus already did. That's why you're there. His righteousness not only counts toward your salvation, but also toward your sanctification. God's present grace is actively involved in our lives. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The issue is not whether we need to believe or uh, sorry to obey his commands. Okay, I'm not I'm not a hyper grace guy here. Of course we need to obey. We've got over a thousand of them in the New Testament directed right at us. In fact, Ephesians 1:4 says that God chose us so that we would be holy and blameless. And then in Ephesians 4, after spending the first three chapters describing what God has done in Christ and our salvation, Ephesians 4, 1, he says, Therefore, in response to this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he gives 40 commands in the last three chapters. No, we need to obey. But the issue is how. And the issue is what will motivate you. What's the right motivation to obey? Well, I think Paul addresses this in verse 10. Look there with me in Ephesians 2. If you go back there, he says this. After describing for a grace you've been saved, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that word workmanship here. It's the idea of a, of a masterpiece. It's, a, it's the work of a craftsman. And notice he says that we've been created in Christ Jesus. That's the same root word as we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are a new creation. 
And so at salvation, this is what God does. He takes a person who's dead in sin, unable to do anything on their own to please God, to be right with God. And he takes that person and he molds and shapes, transforms them into a vessel to be used by him for good works that would bring him glory. That's amazing. That's incredible to think about. Now, again, it isn't that our good works saves us, but God does save us so that we would do good works. R.C. Sproul said this, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And so Ephesians 2.10 tells us, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a lifetime of good works that he has prepared for you to do. That's why we have all these commands within the New Testament, what we're called to do. He gives us clear instruction. And notice in, uh, listen to Ephesians, or sorry, Titus 2.11 He says this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That refers to God's past grace in Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. That's a word that means to teach, to to discipline, to train, training us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. So God is... In his salvation, not only is there grace in the past to save us, but there's grace in the present to sanctify us. That his grace is is instructing us through his word, instructing us, training us, disciplining us to live a godly life. Remember what Paul told or what what God told Paul in Second Corinthians twelve nine? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Brothers and sisters, God's grace is sufficient for you to obey every command that he has given. His grace is sufficient for you husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. His grace is sufficient for you wives to submit to and respect your husbands, even when they're a jerk. His grace is sufficient for you parents to raise your children In the fear and admonition of the Lord, as Ephesians calls us to, his grace is sufficient for us to forgive others. His grace is sufficient for you not to be bitter or angry or lustful or lying or gossiping. His grace is sufficient for everything we need to live godly in this life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We need God's grace as much now to live out the Christian life as we did to enter into the Christian life. Again, I'm not preaching a passive action here either. It's not, okay, I'm just going to sit here, wait for God's grace, let it flow. Yeah. Where's that zap, baby? You know, I'm not talking about that. That's wrong. (laughs) Otherwise, we wouldn't be given commands. Command means, no, you need to do this. But again, how? What's the motivation? We'll get to that in a minute. You know, I like how John Newton put it in the fourth stanza of his hymn. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. His grace in the present. What did it say in Philippians 1, 6? He who began a good work in you, he'll complete it. He'll bring you to maturity. The question again is, well, how? What are the means of his grace? How does that work? 
Well, I want you to think about Galatians 2.20. I think Paul gives the answer there. For He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, he says, how? I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. We see again there both aspects of the Christian life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's God's grace at work in the present. And then he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. That is the means of his grace. By faith. It comes as you walk by faith. Well, what does that look like? Well, God's grace comes as you spend time in his word. God's grace comes as you spend time with him in prayer. God's grace comes as you fellowship with his people. God's grace comes as you exercise the one another's within the body of Christ. God's grace comes as you exercise your spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. God's grace comes as you by faith seek to obey all that he has commanded. I don't understand this command. I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to trust God and obey. That's faith. And those are the means in which his grace then empowers us to do that. Listen, God will not give you a command without giving you, empowering you to be able to obey it. If you will do it by faith. Philippians 2.12 says this, work out your salvation for God is at work in you. Again, it's a both end. It's not passive and it's not up to all up to us either. I kind of, I don't know if this is a good illustration. I'm going to run with it. <laughs> you remember Indiana Jones, right? I forget which one it was. Uh, what's the one where he had to get to, you know, the guy that uh, he chose poorly. That guy with the, you walk, what, which one was it? The last crusade, right? And so, right, he's got to get to that room that's got the, the Holy Grail in it, you know. Again, this is a story made up, okay? But, and, uh, right, it says he got to take a leap from the lion's head. You remember? And he puts his foot out and he goes, right? That was faith. He took the, he did what he knew he was supposed to do, even though he didn't know how it was going to happen. Again, I don't know if that was a good illustration. <laughs> I thought it was a cool scene, you know, but... But that's kind of the idea. Sometimes you, you, you walk forward. You don't know what, what this is going to look like. You don't know, but, you know if, what the outcome is going to be. And it's difficult. But you need, to just, you need to do what God says to do. Trust Him. Trust Him. That's faith. And by His grace, you will be able to... The bridge will be there, so to speak. That's God's amazing grace in the present. There's one more element just briefly I want us to look at here. God's amazing grace in the future. Paul mentions it here in verse 7. And this one, as I meditated on the passage, blew me away as I was starting to think about it. Notice verse 7, he says this, God made us alive in Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice that phrase there, in the ages to come. He's speaking of the future, right? What's to come? And notice the first two words of verse 7. What are they? So that. What does that tell us? That what he's saying here in verse 7 is connected to what he said before that. And those words so that give us a reason or a purpose, sometimes a result. And so Paul is saying here that something he said in verse 7 is connected to what he said back. And I would go back to verse 4. Look at the verse 4 with me again. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. Why did God give a spiritual life? Why did God make a way for our sins to be forgiven? Why did God give a promise of eternal life? Why did he free us from our bondage to sin? You see it there? So that he might demonstrate that is put on display the surpassing. That means exceeding, overwhelming, unending, immeasurable riches of what? His grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you know why God redeemed us according to this passage? So that he could shower you with his grace for all eternity. Grace didn't stop in the past at your salvation. It doesn't stop now in your sanctification. And it will not stop the first day you enter into heaven. Forever and ever. He alluded to this earlier in chapter one, verse six, when he said the father freely bestowed his grace on us in the beloved in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we do not serve a begrudging God. We don't serve a God who when you enter heaven, he's going to go. Oh, okay. well, I guess I got to put up with you since I, I did promise you. I think sometimes we have that concept a little bit. Like, I'm just going to go up here and hide in a corner because I don't think God's going to be too happy that I'm here. (laughs) I mean, there are days we think that, right? But you know what? We have a heavenly Father who wants to joyfully shower us with gifts for eternity. Ephesians, or sorry, Zephaniah 3.17 says this about God's attitude towards his people. He says, Yahweh, your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. Doesn't that blow your mind? Listen, God saved us to be kind to us forever. That's the gist of it here. One of the most cherished stanzas in Amazing Grace is that last one, isn't it? You guys know when we've been there 10,000 years? Stay with me. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Turns out John Newton didn't write that. It was added later, probably in the 1850s, by a man named John Rees. Now, certainly, I think it expresses the sentiment of the song. But, you know, I think if John Newton wrote it, I think he would have said these words toward the end of that stanza. Instead of sing God's praise, I think he would have said we've no less days to see God's grace than when we first begun. 